0: And I suggest that we read from verses 1 to 11. The Word of God where it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness." And if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Thanks for it.
1: A certain method of, to approach a, um, a piece of literature is called close reading. And it means that, that you give ample attention to all the details of a written text in order to extract the maximum information from it. And I really like that method. Though I know some people who can overdo it. For instance, the French philosopher, Jacques Derrida, he managed to write 80 pages of commentary on one word, namely the word yes, in a novel by James Joyce. Now that's a bit over the top in my opinion, and I I won't bother you with an attempt to emulate that. But having said that, I find the method very helpful to approach the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul is not a man for waffling in his letters being the well-educated man he is, and added to that his passion for the gospel of Jesus, we can assume that every word he says or, or writes down under the guidance of the Spirit is worth considering for us. So let's let's do some, some close reading this morning, and of course in, in the context of the whole of the Bible. Now a month ago, We did that with Romans 8 verse, the first four verses. So let's, this morning, let's get into verse 5. And I'll read it again to you. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now Paul is referring here to two totally different mindsets which appear to be mutually exclusive. You either have a spiritual mindset, controlled by the spirit, or you have what we could call a, a fleshly mindset, just human nature. Now, if, if your mind is set on that latter one, if your mind is set on, on what your sinful nature desires, you are driven by all kind of things. You work hard, for you seek security in life. You want to live comfortable. That's what your body likes, isn't it? Or you you put in a whole heap of effort because you seek the admiration of your friends or family. You want to show to the people that you are a successful person, ready to take on life. And that, friends, is what Paul means with living according to the flesh, according to the sinful nature. Everybody does it, and it comes quite natural to you. And there seems nothing wrong with it, does it? Take note, I deliberately did not mention people who live in great sin. People who are not honest in their business, who have sex with anybody they can get, Sure, that's also living according to the sinful nature, but that's in the the final stage of it. But what Paul means here is that people can live a life as decent and useful citizens. Strictly honest, faithful in their marriage, they love family life, they do a lot of good for people who are less well-off, etc., they might be even faithful churchgoers and yet their life's principle is totally ungodly there is no spiritual strand in them unspiritual people Paul calls them unconverted people walking on the broad way that leads to destruction why because they have their mind set on what their flesh desires. Completely natural, but yet profoundly ungodly. Now how different is that mindset from the one who lives according to the Spirit? His mind is set on what the Spirit desires. So that person, in all he does, he asks himself, what would the Spirit want me to do? What to say, what does the Spirit desire? Now in broad terms, I can tell you what the Spirit desires. The Holy Spirit desires a holy life in all God's children. The Holy Spirit desires that you break clean with all greed, with illicit sexual desire, with slander. In short, that you want to please God in all you do. None of us is is going to achieve that fully, that we are consciously conscious of pleasing God and all we do and actually do it. But yet it's, it's the direction of our life that tells whether we are spiritual or not. If you are in Christ, you no longer love sin as you used to do. See, there was a time, and you may remember that, yet you were not in Christ. You you probably knew sometimes that you sinned. But it didn't really worry you too much. And an excuse was easily found, and life goes on, and perhaps for many years. But once you are in Christ, and, and I've explained last time in verse one, that, that's the, the core issue, yeah. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Once you are in Christ, you are part of him, things will be different. You may still fall into certain sins, but you immediately feel bad about it. Your conscience speaks up and you sense that your joy in the Lord is hindered by it. And then you hurry to confess it. You know that about yourself. And usually... ...someone else can tell about you... ...whether you are in the Lord or not. Listen to this this revealing passage... ...in the first letter of of John. It's 1 John 3, verse 7 to 10. And I I warn you, it is just as black and white... ...as Romans 8. 1 John 3. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does right is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning... The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's sin, God's seed, remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now that's black and white, isn't it? And it's a very powerful statement. If someone is living in sin, you know that he is a stranger to the new birth. You have to have a positive righteousness. And if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit makes sure that it happens with you. Take note, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect before you can be a Christian. I'm only saying, once you have become a Christian, there ought to be evident growth in holiness over a period of time. Move on to verse 6. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind of the man controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And again,
0: what a different mindset
1: between an unspiritual person and a spiritual person. Being recently retired. We often meet people who are in a similar situation and regularly the talk turns to, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And it often goes like this. If you still want to do something exciting in life, you better do it quickly, for otherwise we are too old to do it. Well, that does make sense, doesn't it? See, we are both in our mid-60s. So then you are inclined to agree with such a remark and say, well, you're right, life is short, so let's make the most of it while we still can. But do you realize that that's exactly what Paul calls the mind of sinful man? The mind of sinful man is death. So that makes him think, well, let's enjoy life then, as long as we have it. But if you are controlled by the Spirit... You don't think like that. Then your mind is life and peace. And therefore, why do I have to hurry to make something of my life? Because I have a prospective, a prospect of eternal life. And then I can all do all the things I'd like to do without neglecting any task that I may have now. So... If I miss out as a Christian on certain things because I want to use my time and my money for Christian ministry, well, I have peace with that. Because that is life for me. Verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Now, if you've never experienced it, that you want to share your faith in Jesus with someone who doesn't know him. And you sense an instant hostility. They don't want to hear about it. You know why? Well, as long as someone's mind is controlled by the devil, his mind feels uncomfortable in the presence of someone who is controlled by the Spirit. And that's why evangelism is so terribly difficult. There's a a natural resistance in people against hearing about Jesus Christ. They do not want to submit to God's law. They don't want to love God above everything else and our, and our neighbours themselves. And according to verse 7, it's even worse. Nor can they do so. It's an incredibly important statement that you have to think through. Nor can they do so. Many evangelistic efforts are done with the assumption that you only have to encourage people to accept Jesus Christ. And you assume that people have a free will to do so, and that their eternal destination is only a matter of making the right choice now. But I fear that the Bible doesn't support that kind of thinking at all. Man has no free will that he can use to be saved. A sinful mind, says Paul, cannot do so. Unbelieving people are bound and have to be set free. They are blind and their eyes have to be opened. They are dead and they have to be made alive. And to do these things is the exclusive privilege of the Holy Spirit. He has to change the mind of an unbeliever, in order to enable him to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that's why for evangelism, prayer is so incredibly important. Because it's only by our constant prayers for other people that God will regenerate them. And let's be well aware of that. Otherwise we might lead Um, People to think that they have become Christians while they only have accepted a, a, a new set of rules for their life. And it might look pretty good and quite a change actually. It's progress where they came from. But it can be leading them into a dangerous delusion. Because if you try to serve God with an an unchanged heart, you are trying to do the impossible. That's what Paul says in verse 8, by the way. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So you can pray whatever you like, you can spend your life for the poor, you can even sacrifice your own life for the cause that you believe in. But if your heart hasn't been changed, it's all to no avail. How do you know that your heart is changed. I could mention quite a few things here. But it always comes down to what Ben quoted this morning. The evident fruits of the Spirit. Love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. Now, do you know those things? Do you experience them? Love for the Lord Jesus, who saved you. Love for the Father, who created you. Love for the Holy Spirit, who helps you to overcome your sins. Love for your neighbor, who doesn't know Christ. Do you experience joy when you read the Word of God, or is actually pretty boring reading stuff to you? Are you at peace? with life situation, with your life situation, knowing that God is in control of it. Can you wait for Him to make the things happen that are so close to your heart? See, these are the fruits of the Spirit. And this is the evidence that He is living in you. Love and joy and peace and patience. If you don't recognize these things with joy, go to the Lord Jesus and ask him to be your Saviour. And there's a promise there. He will never reject anyone who comes to him with a humble heart. Count on that promise. Plead on that promise and try him out. You'll see it's the truth. Let's move on to verse nine. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit lives in you. So what is that sinful nature? Paul's mentioned many times. It's, it's, your, it's your body. It's actually your, your, your human nature, which has a will of its own. Flesh, we often call it. It's the old translation for it. And I think it's a good word, flesh. We are all flesh and more than often, more often than we like it, we give into it. Pride and worry, and desire, greed, it's all flesh and we all have it. But the point is, as Christians, we do have this flesh but we are not governed by it anymore. That's Paul's saying. That's that's how he is approaching the Romans. You are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, that is, if the Spirit lives in you. Everyone who has received the Lord Jesus Christ has also received the Holy Spirit. And the Bible calls that, you have been made a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now whereas in the past, God lived in a visible temple, since Christ came, he has come much closer. He lives in his people. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that an amazing concept? God, the Holy Spirit, lives in me. One of the persons of the eternal God comes down and dwells in me. That is something to think through. For this has everything to do with dealing with sin in your life. It is a great privilege that God chose to live in me. But it's a very humbling privilege too. Because it means wherever I am, the Holy Spirit is there with me. Even closer than my shadow. Wherever I go, the Holy Spirit goes. Inseparably. Paul uses this very argument to convince the Corinthians that they can't have sex with a prostitute. Imagine you would walk into a brothel for sex. Now, if you believe, if you are reminded of that moment that the Holy Spirit is alive in you, how are you going to explain what you're about to do? Paul says it uh, this way in 1 Corinthians 6, the body is not for sexual immorality. Don't you know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So can you imagine when when this text comes to your mind, when you're about to fall into temptation, that your lust is cooled immediately? Awareness of the Holy Spirit living in you is an enormous antidote to sinning. Perhaps we all have to learn to think more in terms of of us, uh, me and the Holy Spirit, are going to do something together. So together with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to fill in my tax return or soon for me the request for an age pension (laughs) they want to know everything I tried out this week they want to know everything and my flesh has said don't tell them everything but the spirit says well be open about where you're at now many people um, sometimes say the Holy Spirit is is, is 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 coming to where people are together in worship. And we we bring the Spirit down by our worship and praise. Never heard of that. And hopefully then at certain states after you've been worshipping for half an hour or an hour or so, then the Spirit rocks up and indeed. Anyway, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present in the church. As long as his people are there or some of his people are there. He is there too. But don't think when, when you leave the, the church, the building, so to speak, that, that you leave then the house of the Lord. Actually, it is pretty dangerous to think that God is especially present in the church. I, I remember from my, my town in South Africa, I walked to, an, you know, to, a, to a big Dutch Reformed church and they had a big sign there saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. We walked there in on a Wednesday morning or whatever. And I found that frightening. Why is, is any place more holy than another place. We, we would rather have all the Christians written on them, holy, holy, holy. I think that's one of the, uh, the um, prophecies of Ezekiel, isn't it? Yeah? Holy to the Lord. Well, that, that is what it is. See, if you think that, that the church is a very special place where you have to behave very holy, you, you might make big mistakes. People think, well, you can't wear sexy clothes to church. But of course it's okay to wear them in the mall. I think that kind of thinking is nonsense. Because wearing certain clothes has nothing to do with the presence of God. He's with you in the shower anyway. But it has to, what you wear has to do with your behavior among people. And if you, if you, um, if God dwells in you, you are a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. Always, everywhere. Now having said that, that doesn't mean that you are always um, consciously living on a spiritual top. There are days that you feel spiritually great. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven with God's saints forever. No matter what happens in my life, God does it for my good and I'm at peace with that. And it's a wonderful, powerful testimony to feel like that. But it doesn't always feel like that. You can also go through spiritual lows. You do start to worry again about all kinds of things. You feel depressed and you lose your jest for life. does that mean then that the Holy Spirit has left you for a while on your own because of your lack of faith or so? Of course not. You may not always experience the presence of the Spirit as strongly, but don't allow the devil to confuse you that the Spirit has left you. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you do belong. Body and soul, that's a matter of faith. And and how you feel at a certain moment is not a barometer of your spiritual status. You can feel on top of the world. You can feel very spiritual. And yet be totally unspiritual in a biblical sense. And you can sometimes feel down in the dumps. But it doesn't change the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ in life and death. So my feelings may go up and down. But that cannot change the validity of the gospel. And my feelings cannot change God's love and choice for me. Believe it and rejoice. Next verse, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Here's another very black and white statement. Give careful attention to it. What it means is this. If you are a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. See, some people some people think that that you can be a Christian without having received the Spirit yet. You have to wait for an extra blessing to also receive the Holy Spirit. And only then you become from a, a carnal Christian you turn into a, a spiritual Christian. And I think that's very confusing. Because the Bible does not speak like that. And the point is this then, what makes you a Christian? It's not living the way church people do. It's not intellectual acceptance of certain Christian doctrines. It's your love for the Lord Jesus. Do you love him with your heart? Do you want to worship him? Do you want to tell others about him? Do you pray for unsaved family and friends? Are you moved by what happened to Jesus? on the cross, for your sake, as we were singing this morning? Is the name of Jesus regularly on your mind when you think about all sorts of things? Then you are a Christian. And then you must have received the Spirit as well. For it's only the Spirit who is able to kindle such a love for the Lord Jesus in your heart. And therefore, if you only have accepted some Christian doctrines, but not received Jesus himself, You're according to Romans 8, verse 9, not a Christian yet, but you can become one. All you have to do is to return as possible to the basics and ask yourself, do I really trust in Jesus Christ as my only Savior? And do I want to live for him? See, as as a pastor, I can only tell you the gospel. God loves you, but you have to ask yourself yourself, Have I responded to this love by humbling myself and inviting him to take control of my life? First then, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, as humans, we we have a problem with our body. Not in the sense that most of us are a bit disappointed with their body. Too fat or too small, too short or too tall, or something like that. No, it's this. According to Paul, your body is dead because of sin. And what what he actually means is that your your, your body and, and sin, that's so closely connected, it's one. With your body, you sin. You sin with your thoughts and with your tongue and with your hands. And that is why it's called the body of death. It's your body that gives sin the opportunity. And that leads to death. But when you have become a Christian, the picture changes. As our text says, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. See, there was a time that both your body and your spirit were dead because of sin. But one day, through faith, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to you, was given to you. You were justified. And the Spirit took up residence in you and your Spirit came alive. That's what we call our regeneration. It's your new birth. So our Spirit has come alive. But unfortunately, our body is still dead in sin. And that very fact creates the conflict in a Christian's life. Your body urges you to say yes. To say certain to to certain temptations that please the body and your spirit may quite rightly say no. As a Christian, I have to keep my desires under control, and until the day of your death, you have to to deal to battle with this conflict situation. It's a tiring battle. Between your living spirit and your dead body. Allow me a little bit of a sideline. We're almost finished. Don't believe people who say that the Bible promised you, as a Christian, a healing of every physical disease. Many charismatics hold that view. Jesus heals from any sickness. If you only believe, there's no such a promise in the Bible, I believe. Of course, we believe that God can heal any sickness. And I'm convinced that today still many miracles of healing happen. God can do it wherever he sees fit to do it. But that's not the same as saying that every disease will have to disappear from our life only if we call on God in faith. It's not, the Bible is not telling us that it's our right as Christians. Unfortunately, our bodies are still under the curse since the fall into sin. And that explains for a lot of suffering that can befall also a Christian who truly believes. We are saved, but not with our bodies yet. And ultimately, we will all die. That's also part of the curse of sin. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Listen to verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Can you see, Paul is still on the same topic all the time. And it's a wonderful promise. One day we will leave the struggle behind us. One day the conflict between our spirit and our body will be over. Then also our body is made alive again. And also our body becomes spiritual. And we don't have only a spiritual mind, but a spiritual body as well. And how how can you be assured of that? Again, the answer is by the spirit who lives in you. If you have received the Holy Spirit in your heart, there is this absolute certainty of eternal life. Not only for your spirit, that's now already, but one day it will also be given to your body. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you is himself the guarantee for that. As Christians who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, a seal is about assurance we can have full assurance of salvation of our body and soul. That's our joy and strength as believers through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me finish now by just reading a passage from the next letter of Paul that you find in your Bibles of 1 Corinthians 15. And I read that chapter from verse 50 on, where Paul comes to a conclusion uh, very similar to verse 11 we just read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flesh, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death. Sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful gospel we have. That Jesus has come to save us from our sins and to assure us that we really belong to him. He has given us his Holy Spirit who changed our mind, who changed our thinking, who changed our feeling about things, who changed our desires, who changed our outlook. On life and Lord what a wonderful privilege to be part of that Lord we pray that we all continue the battle in overcoming our sin in overcoming our sinful nature the flesh that so easily takes over Lord we pray that we allow ourselves to be more and more controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, for growing in holiness, for becoming more and more like Jesus in all we do, all we say, and all we think. Lord, thank you again for this wonderful gospel. And help us, through your Spirit, to carry it with us as we leave this building, as we go home, as we return to work or school or whatever we do. Lord, continue to guide us and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.